Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this episode of Heart Success Podcast. This is episode 21. We will be talking about cardiogenic shock in our episode today. And our guest for today's episode needs no introduction. It's going to be Dr. Naveen Kapoor from Tufts University School of Medicine. In this episode, we will cover the different aspects of cardiogenic shock. We will go into some diagnosis, uh, some management aspects of cardiogenic shock, role of a shock team and, and that approach and how that's evolved over the years. We will follow this episode with an episode on cases uh, involving patients with cardiogenic shock and different aspects of management uh, and try to get folks from different specialties, including interventional cardiology, uh, heart failure cardiology, intensive care attendings, and, and cardiac surgery on that conversation to provide different different perspectives on how to manage some of those cases. So Dr. Naveen Kapoor is a dual board-certified interventional cardiologist and advanced heart failure specialist. He is the director of the Acute Circulatory Support Program and associate director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. His clinical expertise focuses on invasive hemodynamics, mechanical circulatory support, and interventional therapies for patients with advanced heart failure. He serves on several national committees involved in the AHA, ACC, HFSA, and SKY. As director of the Interventional Research Laboratory at Tufts Medical Center, Dr. Kapoor's translational research focuses on large animal models of acute and chronic heart failure, circulatory support device development, and cardioprotective mechanisms in the setting of acute myocardial infarction. His recent work has focused on the hypothesis that mechanical unloading of the heart and delaying coronary reperfusion actually limits infarct size, a concept known as mechanical conditioning hypothesis. Dr. Kapoor is a recipient of grant funding from the NIH, AHA, and several industry sponsors. He completed his medical school at Georgetown University School of Medicine, following which he did his internal medicine residency at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center completed his cardiology fellowship, heart failure fellowship, and interventional cardiology fellowship at John Hopkins Hospital, following which he started his career at uh, Tufts Medical Center. Welcome to Heart Success, Dr. Kapoor. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Before we start, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you uh, at work and a little bit about you outside of work? Yeah, so uh, I'm um, at work. I'm an interventional cardiologist, and I'm an advanced heart failure specialist. Um, you know, I started uh, after my training at Hopkins. I came to Tufts and have been here for about 12 years. Um, this uh, program at Tufts has been a phenomenal uh, playground for me because we have some of the sickest heart failure patients, a very large heart failure transplant program. And we also are a, uh, a hub for 23 hospitals throughout New England uh, to receive patients with cardiogenic shock and uh, advanced heart failure. So the cath lab is quite busy here. Um, the mechanical support program is uh, on the acute side. Short-term MCS program is what I focus my, my time on. So complex coronary intervention, uh, hemodynamic support, cardiogenic shock. And, you know, over the years, the shock aspect of my work has uh, taken me, you know, from the cath lab over to the critical care unit, as well as to the advanced heart failure unit. So it's it's sort of um, 
become, uh, you know, a very busy part of what I do. And I also run a, um, basic science laboratory here in the Molecular Cardiology Institute where we do fundamental biologic research in cardiac remodeling and, uh, infarct remodeling. And I also, uh, run the interventional large animal research lab here where we do a lot of device testing, device development and, uh, focus on preclinical models of heart failure as well as acute MI. And when I'm not doing that, I spend almost all of my free time at home with family. And we have two daughters and my wife. Uh, and so it's myself and the dog are the only two guys in the house. Uh, and I do a lot of running. Um, and I enjoy uh, basically just spending as much time with the girls at the beach or skiing. And um, that's uh, that's pretty much how I spend my time. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, so important to keep a good work-life balance today. Uh, when I think about interventional heart failure, I think you're one of the people that really comes uh, to mind and really at the front of the field. It also, it was a little novel to me thinking about what I wanted to do initially when I was a fellow, and interventional heart failure was something that came up. Eventually, I did just heart failure. But how did this whole field of interventional heart failure come into place? And now it's expanding into multiple programs around the country, and I know Tufts has an interventional heart failure program, too, for training. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, w- I wouldn't say that you you've done just heart failure. <laughs> that's, that's a huge undertaking by itself. You know, advanced heart failure uh, training for bad transplant and um, the care of these patients is by itself a super, super specialty that requires, you know, an immense amount of time, commitment, knowledge, um, and uh, clinical application. So, you know, but interventional also is a very, um, you know, demanding field as well. Uh, you know, coronary structural, um, all of these aspects are, are becoming more complicated um, in terms of what we do for our patients. So, you know, the idea fundamentally is that, um, so I just set the stage by saying that both interventional and heart failure are, are esteemed disciplines by themselves. The idea of interventional heart failure was really born out of the idea that um, the vast majority of patients that we see coming to the cath lab either have heart failure or are going to be at risk for developing heart failure. And at the same time, a lot of the interventions that we're performing are specifically designed to tackle heart failure physiology. Uh, you're beginning to see emerging technologies for heart failure preserved EF. There's, of course, the mechanical support world. Uh, there's also, you know, complex PCI for these patients. Uh, the mitral therapy is the COAP trial really was the ultimate interventional heart failure. You know, and I, so I think that when I was in training, this was becoming more and more apparent that as a, as an interventionist to become a doctor who could take very good care of my patients, both inside the cath lab and outside the cath lab, I needed to understand heart failure. That's the simple premise behind interventional heart failure. So for interventionalists who want to advance their cognitive skills in terms of management of heart failure patients, who want to be on the cutting edge of heart failure treatments, and who are planning to do interventions on this very sick population, uh, the objective of the IHF program is to train uh, these fellows so that they are fully versed in heart failure before they start doing interventions on these patients. And that's the, that's really the simple idea. It's not, we're not trying to create a um, competitive field or anything like that. We just want interventionists who are better trained in understanding heart failure. So with that in mind, we've had a lot of interest from fellows all over. Uh, the globe. Um, but when I have conversations with those fellows, it's very interesting. A lot of them are actually quite interested in mechanical support and they're interested in cardiogenic shock management. And so that's why most recently in this Jack editorial, 
um, that I wrote to accompany Ankur Kalra's proposal for interventional critical care, you know, my 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 simple statement was that um, critical care is the new heart failure for the interventionalist. And in fact, combining interventional and critical care also makes sense. My only caution uh, to fellows who are considering these dual hybrid training pathways is to recognize that you need to actually complete full ACGME training in both subspecialties in order to be effective at both. You can't um, you can't be a half-baked interventionalist, and you certainly don't want to be a half-baked heart failure specialist. So um, so that's the that's the basic. But I think we're going to see a lot of hybridization coming up. Um, the patients are demanding it, and so um, just by their complexity. And I have several fellows here who who always you know say that's something they're always interested in and want to consider it. Absolutely. So, you know, well, let's jump right into the topic for our today's discussion, and that's really cardiogenic shock. I just wanted to get a sense of, one, how do you define the, this, this uh, entity of cardiogenic shock? And um, what is your approach to somebody, you know, once you're diagnosed with cardiogenic shock, what is your approach to such a patient, initial approach? Yeah, these are great questions. And, you know, I think that the field is evolving rapidly. We're realizing that Cardiogenic shock is a poorly understood problem. Uh, it is also a devastating problem for our patients. Of all of the clinical um, entities that we deal with in cardiovascular medicine, cardiogenic shock has one of the highest mortality rates despite maximal uh, attempts at intervention and therapy. And so I think it's become very clear that this is priority one for cardiovascular medicine. Um, and part of the challenges with cardiogenic shock begin with how do we define it? Uh, and I think uh, because cardiogenic shock can occur in many, many different clinical uh, environments and clinical arenas, uh, it becomes hard to have one unifying stratification or definition approach. Now, over the years, that has evolved. Uh, beginning with the shock trial, there were some very fundamental inclusion criteria for the shock trial, such as hypotension, hypoperfusion, uh, that um, can be defined with basic vital signs and simple laboratory parameters. I think that at its most basic definition, those are probably reasonable. The impact of hypoperfusion versus hypotension, however, I think is still an open question. You know, if you have someone who has, who's normotensive but has a lactate of four, is that worse than having a patient who's got a blood pressure of 80 but who has a normal lactate? And I think those are some of the nuances that we're beginning to become more sophisticated in our understanding. The, um, the recent Sky uh, consensus statement that we worked on uh, as a group, I think, really has helped advance the awareness of the multiple variables that can be used to define shock. Uh, but at its most fundamental uh, definition, I think if you have a patient who has hypotension and hypoperfusion due to low cardiac output, these are patients who you can consider as falling into the definition of cardiogenic shock. In terms of how we um, approach these patients in terms of stratification, it is widely varied. And I think it's very important for us to make sure that when we talk about shock, that we further define, are we talking about acute MI shock or are we talking about non-AMI shock? And non-AMI shock takes us down a very different body of literature. It's a very different treatment pathway. The first question for the non-AMI shock patient is, do we have an exit strategy? Is there a is there a, a long-term viable solution for this patient? And for those advanced dilated cardiomyopathic patients, that question can be very challenging to answer. For um, the uh, non-dilated cardiogenic shock patient who's not, in, not having an AMI, 
you might be a little bit more a little bit more clear. And for the AMI patients with cardiogenic shock, the exit strategy is relatively well established. It's revascularization and then support to recovery. But I think the field is evolving at multiple levels. It's evolving quickly, and it all begins with defining shock. Certainly, survival in cardiogenic shock patients, uh, inpatient in hospital survival, is in the range of 60 to 65 percent, and that hasn't really changed over the years, despite all the advances. Additionally, we've shown in some of our research that the incidence of non-myocardial infarction-related shock seems to be increasing, probably as a result of a lot of patients surviving with advanced cardiomyopathies. You raised some great points on the presence of uh, heterogeneity in how you define cardiogenic shock. That is apparent not only in clinical practice, but also if you go back and look at the trials uh, performed in cardiogenic shock, they differ in how they define this entity, which makes it ever so important to standardize the way we talk about cardiogenic shock. We now have the sky clinical export consensus statement on the classification of cardiogenic shock that you were directly involved in. And I just jumped off another conversation, a talk that I gave to medical students where I showed them that we're in the CCU. When they're in the CCU, they should be looking at these sky stages of cardiogenic shock and using that in their presentation, actually helping lay out on how these patients have progressed between different classes of shock as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about this, this um, consensus statement and this group and, and what the uh, purpose actually was of trying to grade shock? Because I don't think there was any, any significant literature prior to that that attempted to do that. Yeah, no, this was a really, really uh, phenomenal initiative that was driven by David Barron um, and Srihari Naidu uh, from SCAI. And, you know, this group uh, that they pulled together uh, basically are some of the um, folks who work in the shock space. Uh, and I can tell you that the phone calls really focused on trying to come up with a better approach for staging and grading shock. Uh, because a lot of us had a heart failure background, you know, if you think about heart failure, heart failure really started to become more granular in its management once we started to go from NYHA class to staging. <clears throat> once we had a staging system for, for heart failure, we could actually start to go even more uh, even more um, into granular detail of what are the subsets of patients within those stages. And as you got to stage C and to stage D, now you could actually start to imply, apply some of the things like Intermax criteria and start to look at those more advanced patients. And that approach, if you think about it, really revolutionized heart failure management. It allowed for studies to enroll patients who are in a specific stage and say that these therapies are designed for this stage, not this stage. And I think that's, uh, that was the spirit of the consensus group at the SAI trying to do a similar thing for cardiogenic shock. The first consensus statement really um, pulled together all of the variables that could be used to define each of the stages. And I think that's been very good because it pulled clinical variables, demographic variables, as well as hemodynamic and metabolic variables. Um, one of the things that, you know, is happening now is there have been five publications that have since validated the clinical utility of the, cardi of the um, sky shock stages as an approach to identify patients at risk for dying in the hospital. Now, I think that um, it's important to recognize that 
a lot of those papers, they actually have different definitions for each of the stages. So what we need to do now <clears throat> is go from this idea of a staging system with all of these variables at each stage to now coming up with a unified definition for each stage. What variables would you need to collect uh, to define the stages? And that's now in development. And I think these five um, validation papers have, have clearly shown that we need a staging system. Uh, the next step will be to take those um, validation efforts and combine them into a uniform definition that can be applied. I do think that the staging will be slightly different in terms of its characteristics for patients with heart failure versus MI patients. And so that does require a bit more granularity. Um, and how do these sky stages fit into the existing uh, nomenclature for staging heart failure patients, especially with the Intermax criteria? Um, but as you remember, Intermax is also fairly subjective. You know, crash and burn is a pretty broad term. Uh, and what we're trying to do is now uh, give you quantitative metrics that define crash and that also define burn. And, uh, and that's not an easy thing to do. That requires massive data sets um, from large registries, which are, which are now active. And um, I do believe in the next few years, we will have even more granularity on sky stage. I'll take a minute to go over the Intermax levels in heart failure patients and the sky stages of shock for those who aren't familiar with them. The Intermax levels work 1 to 7, where Intermax 1 are the sickest patients and 7 aligns with somebody who has NYHA class 3 symptoms. Intermax 1 and 2 are patients who are deteriorating fast despite support. Class 1 is what we call crash and burn patients, really critical cardiogenic shock. Class 2 are patients who are still declining quickly while they are on inotropes. Class 3 are patients who are stable on inotropes. Class 4 are patients who have resting symptoms but are on oral therapy at home. Class 5 and 6 are more of an ambulatory heart failure but really advanced again NYHA class 3B to 4 symptoms. We use this in heart failure commonly to discuss patients when we're considering advanced therapies to put them in an, an, an intermax level to sort of get an idea of where they are. So to remind you, the lowest level of intermax begins with advanced NYHA class 3 symptoms. The sky shock stages took a similar approach and they have stages A, B, C, D, and E. Stage A are patients at risk whereas stage E is extremis. These are patients who are hypoperfusing with clinical rapid deterioration and, and really refractory shock. So what you would expect in a CCU setting are patients in sky shock stages, class C, D, and E. C are patients who are presenting with some hypoperfusion, but they are not deteriorating. Stage D are patients who are deteriorating, uh, and are showing signs of hypoperfusion, but not refractory to treatment. And like I said, stage E is extremis, where they are presenting with refractory shock, or they have refractory shock. Stage A and B, uh, A is at risk. They don't yet have hypotension or tachycardia or hypoperfusion, but are at risk of developing that. And stage B are patients who are beginning to show early signs of shock, 
some evidence of hypotension, some evidence of tachycardia, but without actually hypoperfusion. So A is at risk, B, C, D, and E are increasing levels of sickness with E being in extremis. Also, these seem to correlate fairly well with your hospital mortality and your mortality in the cardiac ICU. Of course, mortality reaching 70% in some stage E patients in the hospital. Coming back to our conversation with uh, Dr. Kapoor. So, you know, I'll go a little bit into now management of patients with cardiogenic shock. So you mentioned a lot of the markers or the blood tests that you'll get in these patients. You look at the renal function, their liver function, cardiac enzymes, you know, their CBC, um, complete metabolic panel, serum lactates, blood gas analyses. So this is typically where we start, you know, this is a starting point. Now, one thing that unfortunately um, has become prevalent, I feel, and, and, and it's maybe more in the medical field, not as much among cardiologists, but I've heard it quite commonly that there is really no role for hemodynamic monitoring in patients with shock. And I, and, and I think this is a sometimes a controversial topic. So I'll take, what's your take on this? What's your take on hemodynamic monitoring in patients with cardiogenic shock and the role for PA catheters? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I think the, the, the basic principle here is that it's very hard in cardiogenic shock, even in medicine, to say all or nothing. And there's no question that some patients with cardiogenic shock do not require a PA catheter. And, you know, as we've started to look at, um, and look at all of our data in the uh, cardiogenic shock working registry, it's actually become quite interesting. We have a, we have a publication, we have two publications coming out on this topic. Uh, what we learned is that a patient coming in with stage C cardiogenic shock, uh, if you're having an MI, we didn't see any significant impact on inhospital mortality if the patient received a PA catheter versus didn't. If you're a stage C patient who has heart failure, having a PA catheter in was associated with lower in-hospital mortality. If you're a Sky stage D patient, so a sicker shock patient, uh, we found that across the board, whether it's MI or heart failure, use of a PA catheter was associated with lower in-hospital mortality. So what that tells us right there is that the, the use of PA catheter does not need to be in every single shock patient. I think that if you, it certainly, in my opinion, doesn't necessarily need to be there for defining a patient in cardiogenic shock. You can do that based on clinical metrics, as we talked about. But once you get a patient who has um, cardiogenic shock who is not responding to therapies, and that's a challenging one to answer is how do you know if your patient's responding to a therapy or not? You put a balloon pump in, you see very nice diastolic augmentation. And if you don't know that the PA sat is still 30% in this patient, you're going to let that patient sit for a period of hours to watch for lactate washout. And if you don't see lactate washout, then you're going to re react by escalating therapy. So I think that's where the challenge is. So my opinion is that if you have a patient who is in, who's, you define as cardiogenic shock, hypotensive and hypoperfusing, who you, who you initiate a single vasopressor inotrope, uh, and you perform a revascularization, or if it's AMI, or if they're stabilizing hemodynamically, then the next metric to, that we watch for very carefully is the lactate washout. And if we do not see um, lactate washing out, or if lactate levels are normal, uh, so if lactate levels are normal, then I'm less concerned we're going to continue monitoring the patient. If we see that the lactate levels are not washing out or not coming down, then we will um, escalate therapy. 
we do have a bias towards uh, towards studying the hemodynamics on all of these patients. One of the most important uh, hemodynamic metrics that we've identified as predicting outcomes for shock patients is simply your CVP. So one question is, do you really need a full PA catheter or can you just put in a central line, monitor a CVP, estimate a PA set based on the RA set and get some, get some fundamental metrics to help guide your therapy? A lot of this is an evolution. But one question that I'll pose to your audience is, would you be willing to randomize a patient to a PA catheter or not to a PA catheter if they're in cardiogenic shock? And if your answer is no, then I think you've answered yourself whether or not you think PA catheters are useful or not. If your answer is yes, you're willing to randomize, then give me a call and we would love to do that trial with you because I think this trial needs to happen. All of the clinical community needs to understand that we will not move guidelines if we don't randomize patients. Registry data is terrific, but everybody's asking for RCTs. It's the fundamental uh, need. So I think if we have stage D patients enrolled in a study, we should randomize them to PA catheter or not. There will be crossover. And if we show that there's high crossover, that also answers the question. The thing you mentioned is, you know, monitoring response in these patients. Do you use uh, PA catheter information and, and, of course, blood pressure and AOI information to, to make a decision on your strategy early on, on, on whether you're going to use inotropes or whether you're going to do balloon pump or escalate right away rather than waiting on, on, on overtime? Yeah. So uh, we have a... We will um, put in a PA catheter very early on in the shock um, presentation. If a patient, as I said, is um, is not stable on one vasoactive agent, meaning uh, either a vasopressor or an inotrope, then the next step is to put in a PA catheter. If the PA catheter goes in and we do not see stable hemodynamic uh, or cardiopulmonary status, then we will escalate therapy. An escalation of the therapy at that point could be to add more pharmacologic support, depending on what we're seeing. If I see an SVR of 2,000 with a PASAT of 35, I might say, let's give a little bit of nitride and see where we're headed. But if we didn't have that data, we would be flying blind. And that's an absolute mistake in managing shock patients because time is of the essence. And if you're contemplating using any mechanical support device, I don't think you can do hemodynamic support without hemodynamic guidance. And so even if it's simply putting in a balloon pump as your first step, uh, you should not be putting in a balloon pump or an impella or initiating ECMO without baseline hemodynamic data to guide your therapy. Thanks. So before we move on to some of the other complex managements in, in uh, cardiogenic shock, we do encounter patients with mixed shock uh, early on in these patients. And you know, if you look at the data from the shock trial, it looked like 20% of the patients within that study had a low SVR at the onset of cardiogenic shock. And, and this, to me, represents a, a particularly challenging group of patients. So what, how do you look at these patients differently, too? Or, or what is your approach to patients who present in shock but have a mixed component, maybe like a vasoplegic component to their shock? Yeah, so this is another reason why I think um, if you're starting to spin the wheels and you're not moving forward, and progressing with your management of the patient. This is why hemodynamic guidance is critical. Uh, as you saw from the shock trial, <clears throat> we learned a lot of different things. The low SVR subset of patients led to another trial trying to use um, arginine uh, L-name as another therapy, and that was the TRIUMPH trial, uh, which didn't show benefit, but nonetheless was based on uh, some of the hemodynamic observations from the shock trial. 
Having said that, I do think that there are a lot of patients who are um, rapidly evolving in cardiogenic shock. So vasoplegia is one aspect. Uh, renal dysfunction is another aspect. Uh, venous congestion is, a, is another major component. And also right ventricular involvement. And when we analyzed the shock registry and um, the shock trial data uh, with Judy Hockman, we learned actually that even though they excluded patients with RVMI, the vast the majority of patients had RV dysfunction. And in fact, a lot of patients had RV failure uh, in the setting of the shock trial. So what this tells us is that if we're not looking for it, we're not going to find it and we can't treat it. So I think that um, this also drives the reason why if you're if you're spinning your wheels, you've got to start getting hemodynamic guidance. You need a PA catheter in there. So thanks. Um, you know, as part of this evaluation now, something that um, I know the Tufts team has, and we've started here where I work, is having a shock team approach, having a multidisciplinary approach early on in the management of these patients. And you said timing is so important in these cases. You know, you want to get all everybody together, sort of come up with a decision. So Tell me a little bit about maybe your shock team, your approach. And, you know, at the end of the day, we always ask ourselves, do we have really any data supporting this approach? Where are we on that paradigm? Yeah, I think, you know, this has evolved also over the past decade or so. What we've learned is that um, making these decisions in isolation is very challenging. We've learned this also from the heart failure community to get back to this uh, interventional heart failure crosstalk. You know, with heart failure decision making, it's always a team team approach. It's your VAD surgeon, it's your, your medical director of MCS, it's your transplant team, all weighing in on what's the next best option. With heart failure, there's a little bit of time to have those discussions, the evaluations. In shock, it's, it's doing it at Mach 10. And so what that means is that the consensus, uh, you need to have an algorithm in your institution that has team, that was uh, built on team consensus. So that when it's two in the morning and you're alone, uh, and you've got maybe one or two other physicians helping you manage a patient, you're following an algorithm that is built on your team's approach. And that means that whatever resources your hospital has, those are the ones you're going to use in the best manner to support your shock patients. Um, because I don't think every institution can have every uh, technology available and probably doesn't need to have every technology available. So um, our approach here, you know, uh, 10, 12 years ago, uh, was to create the short-term or acute MCS program now, that is also an evolution in thinking, and that has changed quite a bit. Now, fast forward 12 years later, we have an entire group of cardiac intensivists who are now intimately involved and essentially run uh, the shock management for a lot of our patients. I think this has been a, a huge step forward for our program because having a critically care trained um, intensivist uh, in conjunction with a cardiologist or an interventionist or a surgeon really changes the way these patients are managed. I think they're managed optimally using that approach. Now, having said that, um, the shock team decision-making algorithm is still the one that will be applied at in, in the acute setting. So, for example, this past week, we had a patient come in out of hospital cardiac arrest, shows up in the emergency room with ROS, intubated, but massive ST elevations across the precordium. Patients brought to the cath lab emergently on epinephrine, levofed, uh, and on high doses, and uh, has a blood pressure of about 110, 120 systolic on maximal uh, pharmacologic support. LED is occluded, RC is occluded. Uh, our first approach in those patients is not to put in a PA catheter, but was to put in an impella. The patient gets uh, unloaded, hemodynamically supported, 
We complete the PCI on the platform of unloaded support and uh, LEDs revascularized, RCAs revascularized. A PA catheter then goes into the patient. We find an RA pressure of 30, a wedge of 40, and uh, a PA sat of about 45. Now, our next step here is the lactate came back and the lactate is 12. And so in our patients, this is the type of patient we would then stop to think about whether or not we should escalate support. Do we add ECMO to this patient who's in profound hemometabolic shock with severe biventricular congestion who's already on an impella? Do we stay where we are? Do we need to assess their neurostatus? The patient hasn't moved yet. They received sedation, but they also had out-of-hospital bystander CPR. So these types of decisions, I think, require the shock team. And the way we do that now is the cardiac intensivist, um, both of us use the same algorithm that we developed together, comes in. We have a conversation about what the next step might be. We'll then shoot out a text, especially if we go on ECMO because it's so resource intensive. We text out to our um, ECMO decision-making group, which are three people, uh, and um, people respond back with their consensus opinion about next step. And then we apply that approach. I think this approach has been most effective in managing the complex shock patients. And, you know, we've seen data emerging now from several groups across the U.S. that shock teams have impacted mortality in a very favorable way. Uh, the group at Utah with Stavros Drakos has published that. The group at Inova has very effectively shown the implementation of a shock team, uh, especially as it relates to MI shock in terms of improving survival. And also based on the fact that heart team approach is really um, our new ethos uh, in cardiology. But with shock, it's a little different. Uh, there's no time for a roundtable discussion. This has to be something you design that goes uh, in uh, in real time. Yeah, thanks for bringing those uh, points up. You know, the case you mentioned is a little different from what I think we would see at most other hospitals because somebody's presenting with shock, uh, STEMI, uh, the typical strategy, again, if hemodynamically stable enough to revascularize and then talk about getting MCS on board or, or around the same time. What you mentioned is different because you used ventricular unloading first. And, 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 uh, and that's some of the data that's really come out from, from uh, Tufts. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about the, the idea that goes behind unloading first and the timing of unloading and revascularization if that seems to impact uh, or how that seems to impact outcomes for patients? Sure. Yeah, so actually, um, it's very important uh, for, for the listeners to understand that this is what we're talking about with the shock patient has nothing to do with the current STEMI DTU trial, door-to-unload trial. Those patients are not in cardiogenic shock. The data that supports this idea of hemodynamically supporting a patient first before revascularization, actually that data, this door-to-support concept, uh, comes from uh, Bill O'Neill's National Cardiogenic Shock Initiative where in 2013 they published that Impella pre-PCI seemed to have better short-term as well as long-term survival outcomes for their patients. The reason why why we use that approach in a patient like this is that when you're on um, 10 of epi and 20 of levofed and you have a systolic blood pressure, even if it's 110 or 130, that's not hemodynamically stable. What that means is you are on two very high vasoactive agents uh, that are making the heart work extremely hard when both arms are tied behind the back, LAD and RCA. And so that type of patient, if we were in the operating room, there's no surgeon who would go immediately to revascularization on that patient. The first thing that our surgeons would do is put that patient on pump and 
it almost doesn't really matter what pump you use. You can go on ECMO, you can go on Impella, but the point is that you need to go on to hemodynamic support if you're going to undertake an intervention in that type of hemodynamically unstable environment. And so as an interventionalist, I feel very comfortable getting that patient onto support uh, and then uh, performing PCI as opposed to performing PCI, potentially worsening the ischemic substrate. I also don't know how difficult it's going to be re- to revascularize that LED in the RCA, and we could be creating more injury during that time. So on the platform of cardiogenic shock, I think um, hemodynamic support first uh, makes a lot of sense just physiologically, uh, and then this, uh, and then revascularizing without delay. And that's another key distinction from the STEMI D2 trial. There's no need in cardiogenic shock to delay a revascularization. Um, so that's what we did with this patient. And within about, you know, eight minutes, we're on an impella. And through the same impella access site, the 14 French peel away, we actually use that to perform PCI. So we don't need to create a second arteriotomy. It actually can all be done in almost the same procedure, one access site. So I think the techniques have gotten so good these days that you can be on support and opening an LAD and an RCA in about 15 minutes in a patient in cardiogenic shock. And the ones who come in in shock, immunodynamically unstable on greater than one vasoactive agent are the ones who would benefit most likely from that approach. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. There's been really technological changes that have made it easier to manage these patients. You know, I think the hesitation for using mechanical support comes from the worry for complication, leading or thrombo- thromboembolic complications or hemolysis with some of these devices. So are there any particular strategies that you use to minimize adverse adverse events? And then, of course, I, I do want to talk a little bit about ambulatory shock because I know that's that's something that we see these days. Yeah, absolutely. So complications related to MCS is an extremely important topic. Uh, so over the past year, I've been using the term the science of safety as it relates to MCS because this is a, a very strong focus for our group. The, the technology is rapidly advancing, uh, and we as operators in the cath lab are just becoming more familiar with approaches. Impella technology, I think in particular, has undergone a lot of evolution over the past few years, uh, especially as, relate, as it relates to vascular safety. Uh, the sidearms, the 14 French, the single stick approach, these are things that I think will really, really help reduce vascular complications with Impella. They're also and, you know, the company is also advancing the types of technology, trying to get down to a nine French impella system, which will also really change the field quite a bit if they can pull that off. The other thing, too, is that with ECMO, a lot of ECMO is now being done by the cath lab. It's being done by interventional operators, percutaneous cannulation, integrate perfusion. Uh, we are still using cannulas that are designed by surgeons for surgeons. And so that field needs to evolve substantially. Um, we need to have uh, better approaches that are designed mostly for the cath lab and interventional-based approaches. And those are coming out. I think we'll see more of that in the next few years. In terms of hemolysis, this is a critically important concern. I think that this really requires, again, some of that hemodynamic management. What we've learned over the years with regards to hemolysis, especially with Impella, is that this is uh, directly related to the hemodynamic condition of the patient, and it's also related to how you're using the pump. Uh, and, and in its initial pass with hemolysis, a lot of the feedback was it's about pump positioning and you need to optimize pump positioning. So then people were up all night trying to optimize pump positioning. What we've learned is also that it's about pump speed. If you have a patient in our center who's requiring P8 
or high levels of impella RPM rotations per minute flow uh, to generate uh, hemodynamic stability, those patients likely will need to be escalated to uh, a to a larger pump, uh, potentially an impella five or five five pump, uh, because they're requiring maximal levels of CP support. And if you're going to need that beyond 24 48 hours, that's when the risk of hemolysis starts to go up. The second thing is that if you have a patient who has high right atrial pressure, high central venous pressure, and you're using an impella pump, you have to watch very carefully for signs of suction. The, uh, this is usually the harbinger that the RV is not working properly. And as we said, in the shock trial, more than 50% of patients had some degree of RV dysfunction. A lot of them had RV failure. So these pumps will start to develop suction events. If you see suction events, or if you have that high CVP, you should first rule out whether or not a patient has RV failure. And that means putting in a PA catheter, calculating your RA wedge, your poppy RV stroke, or whatever metric you use. And if you have RV failure, you need to think about biventricular support for a lot of these patients. One paper that we have coming out in circulation heart failure is looking at uh, this concept of hemodynamic congestion in patients with shock. By the time you get to stage D and stage E shock, the vast majority of patients have biventricular congestion. When we looked at device utilization across the United States, we found that by the time you get to stage D and E shock, the vast majority of patients are on some biventricular support strategy, ECMO with balloon pump, ECMO with impella, whatever, a bipella, et cetera. So what that tells us is that a lot of the hemolysis may also be driven by the hemodynamic condition of the patient, and that needs to be part of your algorithm for mitigating these approaches. There are many new technologies that are coming out that are investigational that are trying to get larger axial flow pumps, uh, the PHP device is investigational. Um, so we'll see what happens. But at the end of the day, a lot of this we're finding can be managed by the intensive care team, a shock team, as we talked about, as long as you know what to look for. And the vascular uh, complication part, I think, will be solved in the next five years by advancing our technical um, skills as well as um, some of the technologies themselves. Thanks for that excellent explanation on... Um really managing all these different complications uh, really becomes relevant when we have these devices in patients for several days, sometimes even weeks. Uh, you know, that brings up the other aspect of, of device management. Over the last few years, we have been able to move both right ventricular support with percutaneous RVAD using the Protec Duo or LV support, like you mentioned, using in Impella 5.0 through the uh, subclavian artery access or even balloon pump access through the axillary or subclavian artery. Certainly, it has made um, placement of devices for a long amount of time a lot easier in these patients. These patients can sit, eat, walk in the ICU while they are on these devices. You can extubate them, talk to them. The paradigm of managing shock has changed to a degree in, in some of these patients. What is your take on um, using these approaches? Yeah, no question. I, I think patients like it too. Um, you know, so I think the idea of having super diaphragmatic approaches for short-term MCS is the future. It's where we have to go. Um, and in fact, you know, our experience with uh, super diaphragmatic approaches began with axillary balloon pump and also began with the Impella 5.0. Uh, all of our Impella 5.0 and 5.5 pumps are implanted using a surgical conduit in the subclavicular position. 
the 5.0 experience was uh, very, very strong, very robust. A lot of uh, patients who we felt were not going to make it also were saved by the 5.0 approach. The 5.5 has really advanced our approach even more. And in this era with shifting UNOS um, allocation guidelines, we're actually bridging more patients off of 5.5 to transplant, uh, even in the Northeast region, uh, than we were off of LVAD. Uh, to, to transplant. And I think that's a trend that will likely continue. I think the minimally invasive endovascular short-term MCS approach makes a lot of sense. And if you're going to do that for a patient for weeks, it has to be through the axillary sub- subclavicular conduit. The axillary balloon pump, I think, is also a really important advance. IABP shock 2 is not a heart failure trial. I think people need to understand that. That is a trial that was done in ACS. And so the, the, um, the broad condemnation of use of IABP in cardiogenic shock is misapplied. And in fact, IABPs play an important role in our management of advanced heart failure patients. Uh, they have a very different physiology than an AMI patient. And I think that um, the challenge, however, with axillary balloon pump is that if you look at the papers from Jerry Estep and the Texas and Cleveland Clinic experience, those are actually still using a surgical conduit in the vast majority of patients. And our approach is that if you're going to put a surgical conduit onto a patient's axillary artery, we'd rather utilize a more um, higher level of support and simply put in an Impella 5.5 for that patient if possible, since we know that those devices can now go in for weeks. The percutaneous axillary IBP, we've done quite a number of those as well. And the challenge there is is that the devices, the balloon pumps, are not designed for axillary approach. The arrow IABP is braided which allows us to reduce some of the kinking propensity, but the McKay uh, balloon pump is not. And so uh, I would ask any IVP companies that are listening to please develop a dedicated axillary balloon pump uh, for percutaneous application. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll be using surgical conduits for 5.5 uh, and using percutaneous 5BP when we can. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the last couple of topics I, I briefly want to touch base on are revascularization and shock. You know, we have data for using early revascularization in patients with cardiogenic shock. That was from the early data from the shock trial. Now we had the culprit shock trial that was published a couple of years ago that looked at the role for culprit only versus multi-vessel PCI in the acute setting. What's your take on, on uh, this and patients you're seeing presenting in shock that will have multi-vessel coronary disease? Yeah, these are a challenging substrate. And, you know, we're, we're now... Um, in an era where we are developing, uh, trying to develop the ultimate uh, randomized control trial in cardiogenic shock. Uh, there are a number of trials uh, that are out, uh, that are active right now. Uh, I'd say about five or six of them are, are studying ECMO in AMI shock. And, um, you know, the Recover 4 trial uh, will be the penultimate uh, design of best practices for implementation in AMI shock. And this question of multivessel versus culprit I think the jury is honestly still out on this one. Uh, you know, the culprit shock trial is balanced by several other studies showing that multivessel PCI may actually still have benefit as opposed to culprit-only PCI. Um, my take on it is that it depends on uh, the non-culprit vessel. And there are characteristics of that non-culprit vessel that will make me approach it versus not approach it. If I see a, a non-culprit vessel that has thrombus that looks like an unstable plaque or that has impaired TIMI flow, those are those are non-culprit vessels that I will go ahead and revascularize. 
if I see, or if I see a large area at risk, a large myocardium supplied by a non-culprit. If we see that the vessel has TIMI3 flow, smaller vessel, no disruption of a plaque or thrombus, uh, then I might uh, walk away from that uh, non-culprit. I also think that this also requires, again, that integration of how the patient is doing. If the patient is, is critically unstable despite revascularization of the culprit, um, we might have a lower threshold to do the non-culprit. So, again, I would caution against the all versus none based on a clinical trial. RCTs are terrific, but when the RCT is non-significant, uh, I think that's when we really have to stop and think about, uh, you know, what is our approach and tailor to each individual situation. Thank you. And uh, the other interesting thing that comes up now in patients with acute MI is is high prevalence of ischemic MR in some of these patients. And, you know, that can make management quite complicated. Now, we have data for using mitral, some of these mitral devices more in a chronic setting, more in an ambulatory setting. Do you think there's a role for using clips or some of these other mitral devices in the acute setting in patients with severe ischemic MR? Sometimes if you just can't get them off the ventilator, you can't get them off support because the ischemic MR is so significant. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there are a number of different ways of tackling ischemic, ischemic MR. Um, obviously, the first is to just take care of the underlying ischemia. Uh, but if someone, you know, still has, you know, persistent severe MR despite revascularization, or if they're not able to be revascularized, uh, then you really do have to start looking for other approaches. I think in the vast majority of those patients, you can probably stabilize them with afterload inotrope approaches, um, try to wean them off of uh, hopefully um, not on transvalvular support for a long period of time or ECMO. I think there will be um, select cases where resolving the MR or even the TR in some of those cases might be beneficial. That's a, that's a completely new frontier. Uh, for percutaneous valve therapies that I haven't seen any data on. I think I've seen a few anecdotal case reports, but we haven't seen that as a, um, as a, as a standard approach yet because a lot of these patients, their loading conditions are what's going to dictate the MR. And if we put on our heart failure hats, we can actually modulate their loading conditions very effectively by regulating preload and afterload, um, which usually in most cases is sufficient to take care of the MR, especially if it's functional. If it's, if it's uh, primary or degenerative, uh, that's a different story. And I think with some of those flails, uh, you will see go for a mitral clip, um, even if they're in a shock setting. Well, thank you so much for going over all these, all these different things today. I, know I, think, I think we wanted to start with this as just a baseline for, for our viewers and listeners to understand the different aspects of shock. And I know we spoke before we, we recorded this episode about now going into some clinical case management, because I think every patient is so different. And like you said, you know, applying data across different studies is challenging to individual patients. So thank you for that great discussion. Uh, any comments, any last minute plugs, anything to tell our viewers? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, my final comments here are, you know, to summarize this really terrific discussion, and thank you again for inviting me, um, is number one is that cardiogenic shock is a area that we all need to focus on. Uh, it's a it's a high unmet need for our patient populations. Uh, number two, I think as you've heard from this discussion, uh, definitions, staging, uh, hemodynamic guidance, uh, especially around hemodynamic support device selection and management is really critical. It's an area that we still need a lot of input from our clinical teams out there on how to optimize our approach for these patients, algorithm design. Um, and then number three is that I think that as we move into the RCT um, environment with cardiogenic shock, the randomized controlled trials, I think it's really important for all of us to ask ourselves, are we willing to participate 
in randomization for shock management. Every institution has a protocol, has an algorithm that they've built based on registry data, based on their opinions, based on their consensus of the shock team. But we absolutely have to randomize patients in a trial in order to advance the field. So if if you do find us approaching you in the next uh, year or two about participating in a randomized controlled trial for uh, AMI cardiogenic shock, please do think about it carefully because without the without participation and completion of enrollment, uh, we won't have the data in hand. Europe has done a very good job at randomizing in shock trials. It's time for the United States to step up as well. And, uh, you know, we're, we'll be reaching out pretty soon to invite folks to think about uh, participating in a shock trial. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, I know, are you active on social media? How do, how, if somebody, any of the listeners want to ask you about the trials or enroll into them, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. So, um, I do, I do have a Twitter account. It's at Naveen Kapoor4. And I check it, um, I think about once a month. So, uh, so please do reach out. Uh, don't be alarmed if I don't respond immediately, but I, I do eventually check it. And of course, you can always reach me, uh, through the good old, old fashioned approaches of, uh, of email. Very happy to correspond with folks. And thanks again for the opportunity to discuss this important topic. I hope together we can advance uh, the care for these sick patients, both in MIN and heart failure. Thank you so much, Dr. Kapoor. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and give us a high rating, as it helps other listeners find us. You can leave a suggestion for topics, critiques, things you think we can do better. You can email us at heartsuccessteam at gmail.com. You can actually find us on our website at www.heartsuccess.info. Our website now also provides links to all the podcast providers where you can listen to this episode. You can find us on our Facebook page at Heart Success Team, or you can always reach me on Twitter at CardioWell. Thank <laughs> you.